five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. This is the 20th episode of the Space Q podcast, and I'm happy to announce that we have our first sponsor in Penguin Random House Canada. Penguin approached me to get the word out on two books written by astronaut Scott Kelly. One of those books is Endurance. They didn't ask me to review the book, but they did send me a copy. Wasn't quite sure what to expect, but I've started reading it. And while I'm only a quarter of the way through the book, I've read enough to say it's compelling and worth reading. Here's what you need to know about both books. 520 total days in space, and a record-setting year aboard the International Space Station. Astronaut Scott Kelly's memoir, Endurance, and children's book, My Journey to the Stars, tell the story of how a kid who barely scraped through high school became one of the most decorated astronauts of his generation. Endurance is a candid account of his remarkable voyage, of his colorful formative years, and of a future mission to Mars. My Journey to the Stars tells the story of how both Scott and his identical twin brother, Mark, grew up to achieve their dreams of becoming an astronaut. Both books are on sale now and available through the SpaceQ website at spaceq.ca. My guest is Dr. Robert C., Director of the Space Flight Laboratory at the University of Toronto Institute of Aerospace. Some of you might not have heard of the Space Flight Laboratory. However, they are pioneers in what is becoming a disruption of the satellite ecosystem by an evolution in technology that has allowed small satellites to thrive. Welcome, Robert, to the Space Q podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Hi. So one of the reasons why I invited Dr. Z to be my guest is that I don't think enough Canadians are aware of the Spaceflight Laboratory and some of the cutting-edge work in the nano and microsatellite field the lab has been doing since it was created in 1998. So... Could you provide a little background on how the Spaceflight Laboratory came to be and what its initial goals were? Sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, we were established in 1998. That's when the Spaceflight Laboratory, or SFL for short, first got started. Um, and we got started really in response to the opportunity to work on Canada's first microsatellite called uh, Microvariability and Oscillations of Stars, a space astronomy mission. Uh, for the Canadian Space Agency, and so we worked on that mission as a subcontractor to the Industrial Prime, uh, and we provided four of six subsystems for that satellite, and also integrated the satellite, tested it in our lab, and of course supported the launch and commissioning. So that's how we really got started. Uh, we were only about a five-person team back in those days, uh, after most launched uh, we quickly discovered that we were a one-project organization and had to evolve into a business. Um, and about the same time, uh, people were starting to talk about nanosatellites. So we invested some time in developing some nanosatellite technology and selling nanosatellites around the world for uh, useful applications. And so that led to us growing into the organization that we are now, where we're building nanosats and microsats for various applications. 
and we're well over 50 people now um, and uh, 18 satellites operational on orbit. So um, you mentioned most. Now, uh, that was a very successful mission. So I suppose uh, as your first mission, uh, it must have meant a lot and really helped out as you tried to grow the lab by having such a, a successful mission. And I understand, is it still operational, but now as a commercial mission? As far as we know, based on, I guess, indirect reports, most is still operational, even though no one is really using it for much. Funding for most operations uh, ended a few years ago. The Canadian Space Agency essentially um, stopped funding operations. Um, so it's a little bit sad, but, uh, but most is still operational as far as we know. And uh, most really was the the cornerstone of, of our program it it uh, is what led us to learn how to build microsatellites in the low cost um, microspace regime uh, we got some training from some experienced people at the uh, radio amateur satellite corporation at the time and other microspace organizations that were in existence at the time and at the time there were only a handful and microsatellites weren't really taken very seriously uh, until we started doing uh, very important things with microsatellites, such as the MOST mission. And how how did you uh, actually get involved? Like, uh, it, was it your idea, or did somebody approach you? Well, I was uh, I was working with uh, Peter Hughes, who was the professor at the University of Toronto Institute for Aerospace Studies, um, who was, uh, I guess leading the proposal writing and the initiative at UTIES to start a microsatellite program. Um, but I was uh, SFL's first and only director to date. And so I helped uh, establish the lab, um, get the team going on working on most. And, uh, and I guess the rest is history. I've been directing the lab ever since. Okay, so now, if I understand correctly, the, the Space Flight Laboratory is affiliated, but it's actually separate from the University of Toronto Institute of Aerospace and is a commercial operation. Can you explain the relationship and also... Not, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, no, we're, we're not a separate uh, legal entity. We are, in fact, part of the University of Toronto, and we're part of the Institute for Aerospace Studies as a department of the University of Toronto. Um, but the way we operate is a little bit different from a typical university group or a research group. SFL uh, is essentially a self-sustaining group that operates out of Utias, and so we operate like a not-for-profit company. Um, all of our uh, costs, including salaries, are recovered through contracts um, that we win on a competitive basis in the open market, um, whether it's domestic or international. And the lab employs full-time employees that uh, actually all they do is work on, on, on the satellite side of the business, but actually aren't part of any teaching activities. But you also have students who uh, are part of the lab. How, how do the students fit in? Uh, our program is essentially a Master's of Applied Science program. And so most of our students are um, attempting to earn their master's degree. And we accept the master students into our program uh, who then become uh, part of our spacecraft development teams. Um, so they're like junior engineers or apprentices that, uh, that work alongside our experienced staff. And so it's hands-on 
real-world space systems engineering experience um, as part of developing these satellites that we do for clients all over the world. So it's a little bit different from a typical student satellite program in that uh, we do have customers, we do have end users, people that really want their satellites to work and will be very unhappy if they don't get data from space. And so these are serious missions, professionally done missions that uh, that have to work. And so students, uh, you know, depending on the perspective, good or bad, they're thrown into the thick of that and uh, have to uh, perform up to standards. And so it's really great training. It's intense training to get these students up to speed in terms of um, building quality satellites at low cost. And how many students are generally in the program each year? Um, that number has been increasing. When we first got started in 1998, we only had maybe two students, but now we have over 15 in any one year, and we graduate, uh, you know, maybe seven students a year. Um, so the number has been increasing, and demand for our missions has also been increasing. So, yeah, so uh, let's talk about that. Um, since 1998, you've built 18 satellites, from what I understand, but 14 of those have been built since 2012. And then by looking at it, it looks like about an average of three satellites being built per year. Um, do you have the facilities to ramp up production? And if so, how many satellites could you build per year with your current infrastructure? Well, we do have facilities to ramp up production, and we're not at uh, the facility's capacity, um, so there is room for growth. Uh, a little-known fact is that uh, uh, we build these satellites concurrently, and that's one of the things that we're good at, uh, doing concurrent satellite development. And these aren't all identical satellites, which would be much easier. Instead, they are essentially all different satellites that we're doing in parallel, and we could maybe do 10 to 20 different satellites uh, all in parallel. When you're talking about building constellations of um, similar satellites, identical satellites, that's actually a bit easier to do than what we do. And so the numbers there could go up um, you know, beyond 20 if necessary. Um, but, uh, but that's an emerging area in the new space industry where uh, these large constellations are being considered for commercial applications. And we're starting to get some business in that area as well. So it's a, it's a new area for expansion and growth for us. So uh, if I understand correctly, you just said that you could, you could probably do uh, 20 at the moment? Yeah, if they're all different satellites, we could probably do 20 different satellites at any one time. Certainly the rate of development has gone up through the years, as you've noted. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we started with just focusing on one satellite, but now we can do many in parallel. Uh, that's not to say that they're all at the same stage of development. Some will be in their design stage and others will be in their assembly integration and test stage. And so they're a bit staggered and requiring uh, different kinds of attention. So you're providing the satellite bus for one of the two protos type satellites that Telesat is uh, launching in the next two months as part of their low Earth uh, uh, observation uh, constellation. Uh, can you, because some of our listeners will be well versed in this, some of them won't be, can you explain to our listeners what a satellite bus is? And I understand that the one that you're using for this is uh, called Dauntless. Uh, can you explain the difference between this bus compared to some of the other ones that you provide? 
We have several different platforms for different sizes of missions. So we can support three kilogram missions all the way up to 500 kilogram missions. And so I believe our website has uh, a summary of the different platforms, typical platforms that we've used for various missions. So we have three kilogram platform, a seven kilogram platform, 15 kilogram, 20 kilogram, uh, 50 to 150 kilogram uh, platform, and a platform that can support up to 500 kilograms, which is the the Dauntless bus that you just mentioned. Um, so, uh, you know, we're able to support applications that require nano satellites, micro satellites, and uh, small satellites, and we. We try to build as small a satellite as possible for the given application. Um, it's our philosophy not to use anything bigger or more costly than, than what the mission needs. So, so you are building this one prototype for Telesat, and Telesat is planning on uh, launching a constellation of 117 satellites plus spares. Um, would you be interested, or it might be too late now, I'm not sure, uh, in actually getting some of that work in terms of uh, providing the buses for that constellation? Um, it's still a little bit early to, to say at the moment. Um, I can't comment on their, uh, on their plans and their procurement strategy, uh, but I will say for the, uh, the satellite that we're working on right now, which in fact will be launching very soon, uh, we worked with uh, Space Systems Laurel in the States, who's, who is the prime contractor to Telesat. Um, and so we were a platform provider to SSL uh, in the United States for this Telesat mission. Um, so all I can say is that, you know, we hope that our collaborative uh, uh, endeavors will continue with um, SSL and other parties so as to uh, open the door to new opportunities with Telesat and other companies. Now, this uh, Dauntless uh, platform is a lot larger than what you used to uh, just work on. Is this something that just came about in the last couple of years, or is this even newer? Well, you know, we've always had the ability to do spacecraft up to the, the small satellite, um, I guess, regime. Um, but it's, a, it's a, always a question of, you know, what you've done in the past and what people feel comfortable with in terms of ordering from you. Um, but uh, we've always had that capability, and so we knew that we could do this. And um, all it took was, uh, uh, you know, one or two customers that, uh, that had faith in us to do it. And so uh, that's how we've gotten to this point. Um, and we have this, this platform that really allows us to show our capabilities to the world and, and um, how our products are, in fact, quite diverse and diversified so that we can support missions of various sizes. So even though um, this size of spacecraft or this class of spacecraft is somewhat new for, uh, I guess, SFL's uh, repertoire of, of uh, typical platforms, we... Um, we have been using and are using the same core technologies, the avionics, the power systems, um, the uh, attitude control hardware and software, the same core systems across all of our platform classes. Um, so really, this new platform draws heritage from all the other satellites that preceded it. Um, and what's new is really the structure and the thermal design and the accommodation of the payload. So, um, okay, 
how many satellites are are you currently building? How many satellites are we currently building? We're yeah. building, uh, we're developing uh, about 15 at the moment. Um, some are waiting for launch. Others are in the design phase. Um, so like I said, we have satellites that span the, the different stages of development. So we have about 15 at the moment, and that number is increasing, and there's a greater demand for our, our capabilities and our missions. So uh, we're running a lot of proposals. Wow, that's great. Um, who, who, other than Telesat, who, who are some of the customers that are interested or that you're building well, I can't for? Really, yeah, I, I can't really talk about new customers uh, at the moment. Usually we don't. Um, uh, talk about those potential customers until you know a contract is signed, and of course we have. I mean, I mean, cus- customers that you already have that you're building for. Um, customers that we already have. Um, uh, for example, there's the uh, Hawkeye 360 Pathfinder mission that we're working on with uh, uh, Deep Space Industries in the United States, who's the prime contractor to Hawkeye 360. So those involve that that mission involves three. Um, I guess 15 kilogram class um, satellites uh, doing uh, passive RF geolocation services that uh, Hawkeye 360 will commercialize. Um, There are some other missions that have just gotten started and we haven't yet gotten (laughs) permission to talk about them in in public, but uh, we, uh, uh, we have some anchor customers in the government of Norway, for example, They've ordered uh, many satellites from us. I think we've done five so far, um, and hopefully more are going to be ordered soon. And uh, and I believe that uh, that if there's a need for it, we will um, step up to the plate and develop whatever custom solution they require for their future missions. Um, we have some proposals in the works as well, um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, we also have um, DMSAT-1, which is uh, uh aerosol monitoring mission that we're doing for the uh, Mohammed bin Rashad Space Center in Dubai, uh, which is another 15-kilogram platform that uh, is uh, monitoring aerosols um, and also monitoring greenhouse gases. Um I'm just trying to think here. Are you working uh, with uh, Are you working with Kepler Communications? No, we're not at the moment. Okay, because that's another Canadian constellation for our listeners who may not be aware that is going to be built out in 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 the coming years. Uh, uh, should they get their funding, and they're they're based out of Toronto as well. So, right. Um, you you've actually done some. I mean, you've built all sorts of a variety of satellites, a variety of sizes of satellites. Uh, and you've done some uh, very innovative work from what I understand. So uh, let's just talk about that uh, for a second. Uh, earlier this year, you successfully demonstrated uh, the deployment of a drag sail uh, that will help uh, deorbit satellites. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And is it something that, uh, that you're going to soon uh, bring to market? Or was it just strictly... Uh, a demonstration that uh, may or may not get off the shelf. Um, well, I believe you're referring to the Canix Seven mission, That's right. which yeah. was a three kilogram satellite that carried four drag sails, each of one square meter in area. 
Uh, and those sales were recently deployed earlier this year, um, I think in maybe May. And so the satellite is deorbiting right now and um, losing altitude more quickly than it otherwise would. We developed these drag sails really to um, be a deorbiting device for us for cases where we need to come in faster than we otherwise would naturally. And this is in response to the interagency space debris coordination committee's guidelines, the IADC guidelines, that low Earth orbiting spacecraft should uh, re-enter or be deorbited within 25 years of end of mission, um, so as to, of course, mitigate the space debris problem. That's a growing problem uh, in low Earth orbit and also in geostationary orbit. So some satellites will come in naturally within 25 years just based on their um, existing ballistic coefficient, uh, but, uh, but other satellites will not. Some satellites, uh, say, in higher altitudes, maybe 800 kilometers, 900 kilometers, will be up there for hundreds of years. And so those satellites that don't come in naturally will need some kind of deorbiting assistance. And we did a trade study and settled upon the drag cell technology as uh, being the least intrusive technology that we could um, carry on one of our nanosats or microsats uh, to assist with deorbiting. And what I mean by unintrusive is that um, they would sit quietly during the main mission, and when it's time to deorbit, they would be triggered, deploy, and then be worry-free afterwards. In other words, no further operation of the satellite would be required. The satellite would essentially have a lower ballistic coefficient as a result of deploying the drag sails and atmospheric drag would help bring the satellites back to Earth. Um, so the idea was for us to develop these drag sails mainly to avoid um, problems down the road with uh, regulatory compliance. Um, even though the IADC guidelines are only guidelines and not enacted into law in Canada. Canada, among other countries, are enforcing those guidelines by denying uh, licenses, whether they're frequency licenses or remote sensing licenses, unless a viable uh, space debris mitigation plan is presented uh, with the application for those licenses. So uh, in order to overcome potential regulatory barriers in the future, it was important for us to develop this technology so that we could point to it and say that we have this technology to assist with deorbiting. Um, our goal is not necessarily to sell this as a product, but um, to have it uh, in our wheelhouse so that we can incorporate um, these drag sales, these deorbiting devices as needed um, to help our customers and to help us continue with our missions and not be, um, I guess, uh, uh, obstructed by regulatory barriers. Are, are, they, are there any of the drag sales technology being incorporated into any of the current builds that you're doing? Um, there are a couple of missions where they're being considered, but again, it all depends on the final altitude of the satellite, final launch vehicle selection, and what the um, what the you know final ballistic coefficient looks like um, for for each of those satellites. And um, does the technology scale, or or is it only up to you know X number of kilogram satellite that'll work on? Well, we have a design right now that um, can be used for you know uh, microsatellites. So it's good for nanosatellites and microsatellites, um, and 
you can accommodate um, larger demands, bigger satellites with more than one drag sail. We have four drag sails on the demonstration mission, CANX-7, um, but that's really way more than, than it needs as such a small satellite. And so it's coming in a lot faster than it actually has to. Um, but you know, by varying the number of drag sails, you can get more or less deorbiting assistance. And so if we have four drag sails, each with a square meter each, we can deorbit um, uh, a microsatellite from uh, a high, low Earth orbit, if that's not a contradiction. Yeah. So um, uh, if I remember correctly, you've also done some other innovative things that were first, including uh, some formation flying uh, a couple years ago of uh, nanosatellites. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of the other innovations that you've done and uh, over the years? Sure. Um, by formation flying, you're referring to the CanX-4 and CanX-5 mission. That's that right. was launched in June of 2014 and mission completed in November of 2014. So that was a highly successful uh, autonomous formation flying mission using two 7-kilogram nanosatellites. Um, and so it demonstrated all the, the hardware, uh, including attitude control technology, propulsion technology, carrier phase differential, GPS, um, navigation algorithms, formation control algorithms, all working in concert to demonstrate several, several formations ranging from 50 meters to 1,000 meters in separation, uh, whether a long track formations or projected circular orbit formations. Highly successful mission um, with uh, relative position determination to within a few centimeters and relative position control to under a meter. Uh, and the results were independently verified by the, the German space agency DLR uh, using the GPS residuals from the missions. So they, they um, proved that we did what we said we did. Um, so CANX 4 and 5 demonstrated this precise autonomous formation flying technology, which we're now able to use on actual missions for customers. Um, while keeping costs low enough that um, you know they're able to do these missions as part of their business models. Hawkeye 360, for example, uh, is a company that's exploiting our formation flying technology uh, on, a, on a constrained budget. Um, so formation flying technology in small, uh, low-cost, uh, accessible packages uh, is one innovation. But there are other innovations as well. Um, I mentioned the fact that we have low-cost platforms spanning from three kilograms to 500 kilograms, um, and those, in and of themselves, are are innovations uh, that are noteworthy in terms of their capability versus cost. Uh, they bring a lot of value to uh, our customers in terms of what they can do uh, within the um, within the cost that. Uh, uh, that has to be covered through their budgets. So um, platforms, another innovation, but in the platforms themselves, um, we have outstanding attitude control. And I would argue that our attitude control people at SFL are among the best in the world. And we're able to do uh, all kinds of different uh, attitude control from inertial pointing to nadir pointing to ground target tracking with a high degree of accuracy and stability. Uh, and we have actually demonstrated um, uh, on-orbit performance and not just uh, made promises on paper. Um, we've developed um, attitude actuators like 
the Reaction Wheel product line of Sinclair Interplanetary. We developed that in collaboration with Sinclair Interplanetary. We did the mechanical design for that, and Sinclair Interplanetary has turned that into uh, a big business for them. And these wheels are being used in many, many different missions around the world. Um, other innovations include our modular power system. Uh, where we can scale up or scale down the modular power power system to handle one watt missions to you know 1.5 kilowatt missions, and so uh, that scalability allows us to use the essentially the same technology across the various platform sizes that I mentioned, and we have a, just about all the components needed for a satellite done in-house from radios to computers, um, software, ground segment hardware. Um, we also build dispenser systems for nanosatellites. Um, so these are yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. You, you have this XPod separation system. That's right. Um, so the XPod um, dispenser system really is like a jack-in-the-box system. Um, there's a structure that contains the satellite, and a big spring pushes the satellite out, uh, jack-in-the-box style, when a door opens, and so. Sounds like a simple concept, but of course is much more involved to make it work in space. And so we have X-Pods of different sizes that can support um, satellites ranging from 3 kilograms to about 20 kilograms. Above 20 kilograms, we'll use uh, more commonly found separation systems, single-sided, if you will, separation systems that are provided from uh, launch providers or purchased on the open market. Those larger satellites are more mass efficient with a with a normal or regular separation system rather than an X-Pod. But we've had many X-Pods um, launch and be successful in space. I, I've lost count. I think it's up to 25 now, uh, all of various sizes. So yeah, X-Pods are very helpful for the smaller satellites. Now, uh, listeners may not know this, but you don't just build the satellites. You also manage some of the satellite missions you build for your customers. How many missions is the Spaceflight Lab uh, currently ma managing, and, and what are some of them? Sure, yeah. I mean, we, we offer an end-to-end -end service from conceiving a mission all the way up through to launch and on-orbit operations. Of course, different customers will require different things. Some customers want to operate their own satellites. And so out of the um, 18 satellites that are operational in orbit, uh, seven of them are under continuing uh, direct SFL management, meaning that we're uh, continuing to operate those satellites. The other satellites uh, have been handed over to our customers for them to operate, which is what they wanted. So uh, many of these satellites are under the operational control of our customers at the moment. And uh, any examples of ones that you're managing? Um, well, for example, we are continuing to operate GHGSAT-D for GHGSAT Incorporated in Quebec. Um, the CanX missions like CanX2, CanX4 and 5, and CanX7 are all owned by us. They're more R&D missions, technology demonstration missions than anything else, and we're continuing to operate those. Um, the Bright Toronto satellite, which is part of the five-satellite Bright constellation, is operated by us as well. And um, you also offer uh, another service, which is uh, low-cost launch service. Uh, is that strictly through uh, 
the Indian Space Agency, uh, or should I say Antrix, their commercial arm of the Indian Space Agency? No, it's it's not just one space, uh, or shall I say launch provider. Um, we negotiate launches and, and procure launches from all over the world. Um, Antrix is one provider, but there are other providers. Um, uh, the, the Russian space agency Roscosmos, through their commercial um, counterpart, Clav Cosmos, uh, handles the Soyuz rockets, and we've used Soyuz rockets in the past. Um, we have upcoming missions that will launch on uh, Falcon 9 out of the United States. And so we arrange launches with credible launch providers all over the world. Um, and we really do this to support uh, to support our customer. If they order a, a satellite or a platform from us, uh, we're often called upon to negotiate and manage a launch for them. Uh, it's not so much that we're offering it as a generic service for um, others who build their own satellites to come and use, but uh, really we're focused on launching our own satellites or the satellites that we've built for our customers, just because there's so many of them, it, it really does keep us busy. So how do you see the Spaceflight Laboratory evolving from its current form? Um, well, I mean, we've always been about servicing the international market and, and doing what makes sense for customers with a variety of applications, not just a single application, and enabling them to do what uh, they need to do in space that they otherwise couldn't do if they didn't have um, our technologies, which offer good performance at, at low cost. Um, so I see us servicing um, those potential applications as they emerge, even unknown applications. Uh, the whole new space era has begun where uh, companies are investing in constellations for various purposes, whether um, whether it's Earth observation or communications or or monitoring assets, um, and uh, we're getting greater and greater interest from companies in the new space um, era that uh, that need our technology in order to make their business models work. Um, so we want to service that emerging trend of uh, commercial constellations. We want to continue building satellites for domestic and international customers. Um, we want to continue to innovate and increase performance uh, and product diversity while keeping costs low. Uh, we continue to want to um, help businesses, small businesses especially, make successful entries into space, uh, bring their infrastructure costs down. There have been so many um, startups in, in the past, not just the past decade, but maybe two decades, where infrastructure costs, satellite costs were too high and those companies went out of business before they were able to make a profit on the services that they had intended to sell. Um, so we're all about lowering the entry barrier to space and also making business models work by virtue of high performance and low cost. Um, we want to, uh, like I said, enable new and emerging applications, service new applications as they arise. And last but not least, we want to do more missions for Canada. I think Canada can do a lot more than it has been doing with our technology and our capabilities. Um, for the Canadian public and the good of the public. Um, if, if Canada is able to do more useful space missions at lower cost, um, then the taxpayer will get more bang for their buck. And so we want to do more missions for Canada. And do you think that should be part of uh, a new space strategy that's, uh, uh, I suppose, set to come out uh, on or before the budget? 
Well, it depends. Um, you know, Canada does have a long and proud history in space, and uh, sometimes these new concepts are, are difficult to adopt given the way Canada is currently structured. And um, unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, we're not as well known within Canada. That is changing, of course, but we're not as well known within Canada as we are outside of Canada. And, uh, you know, we're working hard to change that. Um, but uh, Canada has, like I said, an existing space industry that sometimes makes it difficult for newer ideas to get adopted. Um, so it's a continual battle and we intend to keep fighting. So uh, I just have two more questions. The, um, you know, there's a lot of focus on uh, constellations in, in low Earth orbit, but there are, there's also a push to take these new small satellite platforms, microsatellite platforms, and, uh, you know, really put them uh, to use beyond uh, low Earth orbit. Uh, at the moon, uh, there's proposals for Mars, uh, or sorry, for Venus, uh, for Mars, potentially. Um, what do you see as uh, the biggest challenge for uh, the type of smaller platforms that you develop uh, to be used in those uh, faraway environments? One of the challenges, of course, is communications. Um, so how do you close the link between Earth and your asset out at a much further distance than um, they're typically used? Um, so there are different ways that it could be done. Either it's relayed through a mothership of some kind or um, you have very expensive and big ground station equipment on Earth that can talk directly to your spacecraft that's out at that further distance. Um, but a lot of the core technologies can be reused. Uh, it's just a matter of understanding the environment, how the radiation environment is different, how the thermal environment is different, if there are extended shadows, for example. Um, but uh, I would say communications is one of the one of the difficult ones. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, depending on how far away from the sun you are, then the power system has to be tailored for that as well. Uh, if you're not at exactly one AU from the sun, then power situation, the thermal situation will be different. So I think it's a matter of just understanding the environment and designing to that new environment. Um, but otherwise, the same approaches, the same uh, core technologies can be reused. Well, it certainly sounds like the Spaceflight Lab is growing uh, and doing some great things. And like you say, a good portion of your audience, the people that know you are more from the outside of Canada than inside of Canada. But uh, as the, the Spaceflight Lab grows, do you see it growing to a point where maybe it gets spun out of the University of Toronto into a separate uh, business well, we get that question a lot, and our philosophy has always been uh, we're going to do what makes sense. Our focus has always been on the mission rather than on profit. And there are some research and development missions, for example, like CanX 4 and 5, the formation flying mission, that never would have been done if we were a company, um, just by virtue of the fact that uh, a lot of investment, our own investment, was required um, and, and, you know, it wasn't necessarily profitable at that point in time. I mean, we're able to use the technology now, market it to get new business, but, um, you know, something like that would have been 
uh, harder to do at the time had we been a company. So there are things that we can do uh, based on the structure that we have right now that uh, we couldn't do if we were a company. Um, and our focus was uh, more on profit than than on completing the mission. So, um, you know, we will do what makes sense. Uh, if certain activities are better done in, in the commercial regime as part of a company, then we'll do that. Um, but right now, the formula that we have, the, the secret sauce recipe that we have, and uh, being who we are right now, uh, is what has led to the results that we've summarized during this interview. And we would not have had similar results if we had been just a company um, in the past. So I think if you want different results, you need a different kind of animal, which is what SFL is. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank Robert for being on the Space Q podcast. I hope you'll consider being a guest on a future show. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk with me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about SFL. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find Space Q on Twitter at Canada in Space and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at the Space Q and don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher and if we're connected, you'll get Space Q articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined. Inclined.